Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In the Gospel of John, there are two episodes in chapter 3 and chapter 4, if you want to look there. And they're set side by side. And in the first is the story of Nicodemus, who is a ruler of the Jews, maybe on the Sanhedrin, who seems hesitant to trust Jesus. And then in chapter 4, where we'll read from, is the story of a Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, who immediately believes in Jesus. And so I think the two stories stand in contrast. But let's look at John 4, 7 to 14. There came a woman of Samaria to, to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself, and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. I think that sometimes what is up for question or doubt in believing or not believing the teaching of the New Testament doesn't primarily concern God or deity, but it's of immediate experience. You know, what order of experience is true? What is the nature of reality to which I should entrust myself? Is it possible that desire or thirst can be quenched? That's the question. Is it the case that the love of God is not bound by the barriers of Jew, Samaritan, male, female. Can one experience life in such a way uh, that is on the order as Jesus described here to both Nicodemus and the woman. In both instances he has a discussion about spiritual life. He'll talk to Nicodemus about being born again. To the woman he'll talk about worshiping in spirit and truth. And so is there this possibility of having desire or thirst quenched? And so the question is really about what sort of world we live in. Now a kind of companion piece to this, and John, the writer of the gospel and the writer of the epistles, 
gives us a definition. He says God is love. And he translates it into an immediate ethic and an immediate experience. And so does the love of God found in Christ quench? Does it quench desire? Does it quench thirst? Does it fulfill us? And so the real question is whether I give priority to the experience of love. Is this a reality? Is this ultimate reality? And it is not that I do not otherwise have access to the experience, but is this a reality which should shape the course of my life, my ambition, my sense of self, my desire? And so to state it in these terms, the question is no longer simply an issue of belief in God, as priority is given here to a particular experience. You know, God, they all believe in God. Nicodemus believes in God. The Samaritan woman believes in God. But their belief is stilted. Even the picture of God in the Bible might be construed as focused on righteous requirements. Maybe that's where Nicodemus is focused. Maybe it's on honor and respect or omniscience and omnipotence rather than on the love of God. And this focus may give rise to a very different set of priorities, ethical priorities. It may prioritize a very different sort of experiential reality. And so maybe the main thing is, oh, my getting right with God. That might be that the focus is on, oh, I need to rightly align myself with the church, or I need to be a believer, or I need to be upstanding. Maybe something like Nicodemus. He mainly wants to be righteous. God might be perceived as beyond experience. Maybe not pertaining to experience. Maybe rendered secondary, you know, to doctrine. And the woman seems to have not related. She says, you know, she doesn't connect her religion and her ethics. She says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And then Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And so in the companion piece, you know, in 1 John, it describes how experience, religion, God, and the world all meet. 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God. Here's this depiction of new birth. A new birth into the love of God. And everyone who loves knows God. How do you know God? Well, through love. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. And so, if we're made for love, if this is true, and it is in love that we come to know ultimate reality, the reality of God, the reality of ourselves, if we miss this, this means we're duped about who God is, we're duped about the world, but we're also duped about our own immediate experience. And so we're accorded the opportunity 
You know, think of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. But we're all accorded the opportunity to enter into the presence of God, to experience the very depths of the glory of God, to know the world as a kind of paradise. And to fail in this, that is the human tragedy. And so if we read the Gospels in this light, and in these various episodes and characteristics, we read that, oh, here is the human predicament, and here is the resolution. So Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, they're set side by side. And of course, what becomes clear is the Samaritan woman is at great advantage to recognizing Jesus over Nicodemus. Which is sort of strange because she's a Samaritan woman. She's outside of Israel. She is a woman who has had five husbands and is living with a man who is not now her husband. You wouldn't think that would be a prime candidate. Wouldn't it be Nicodemus, a leader, respected teacher among the Jews? But Nicodemus, this teacher of Israel, seems incapable of understanding what Jesus is talking about. He uses the language, very similar language of new birth. You know, he's going to talk about desire, new birth, conception. And in both instances, the discussion revolves around life in the spirit. You know, that you will no longer worship at this mountain, but we will all worship in spirit and in truth. And so in 3.5, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water... A lot of water in both passages. And of course the water is connected with life. The water is connected with the spirit. Unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, well, wait a minute. How can a man be born when he is old? He seems very literal and wooden in his thinking. He seems to lack imagination. Where the woman is easily, you know, they, they have this kind of metaphorical discussion about wells and drinking water that she seems to follow, but he doesn't. He says, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? How can these things be, Nicodemus says. Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Of course, new birth is a common theme in the Old Testament. The idea of people's lives being changed, their names being changed. If he was familiar with his own scriptures, he would have understood what Jesus is saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify and what we have seen, and you don't accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things, and that's all he's talking about with, in both conversations, they're talking about earthy things. If you don't believe that, how will you believe heavenly things? And so Nicodemus is at the height of success. You know, he seems to be an example, maybe, of why those shaped by the norms of society are the most deceived, right? That's going to be the story of Nicodemus. He never really acknowledges who Jesus is publicly. We'll see him again at the end of the gospel and he's coming again secretly. 
Whereas this woman goes into the village, she becomes the first evangelist and proclaims to the whole village, come and see this man who seems to be the Messiah. And of course for Nicodemus, he's shaped by respectability. You've got to find security. You've got to earn a living. You've got to be successful. That is his immediate reality, maybe in quotes there, it does not lend himself to recognizing who he's encountering, what he's experiencing. Now it's right after this that you know we have the most famous passage in Scripture. For God so loved the world, in verse 16, that he gave his only begotten Son. He's going to explain to Nicodemus what ultimate reality is. In verse 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness. Could he be saying that about Nicodemus? He loves his position. He loves being a Jew. He loves being a teacher. They love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. And of course notice that Nicodemus has come to Jesus at night. The woman there in the middle of the day and John will play with darkness and light. It's not an accident that in the gospel we'll often see the, those who fully accept him, they do so in the middle of the day. In the resurrection, when he appears to Peter, it's as the sun is rising and he sees Christ on the seashore. And so I think this play of light against darkness is comparing Nicodemus to the Samaritan woman who meets Jesus at the well at high noon. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light. This woman is not perhaps the most ethical of women, but she publicly says, hey, he told me everything I've ever done. The idea here, love or the traits and characteristics, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That's who Jesus is identifying himself to Nicodemus. As opposed to those who refuse love. And so Jesus requires of Nicodemus a radical change. And I, I guess he never, we don't know historically, but he seems to have failed to, to live up to it. Whereas the Samaritan woman, he really doesn't say to the Samaritan woman, you know, you need as radically as he does to Nicodemus. But she is depicted as entering immediately into belief. She believes this is the Messiah. And her thirst, desire problem is not an obstacle per se, right? Her sexual immorality as it is her thirst which causes her, and the image here is very intimate, that he share, she shares a cup with Jesus. They're at a well. What happens at wells in the Bible? Well, that's where, this is Jacob's well. This is where key marriages, key arrangements have been made. And many think that that's the imagery here. That here Jesus is sharing a cup of water which means he's directing himself to her. Here is the fulfillment of your desire. Here is a means of quenching your thirst. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water 
so I will not be thirsty in verse 15 so I won't have to come out here and draw water he said to her well you know go call your husband and the woman answered and said I have no husband Jesus said to her you have said correctly I have no husband you've had five husbands and the man that you're living with now is not your husband that sums up her life <laughs> In a sense, she is well prepared for hearing Jesus' message. She's been looking for love, and maybe she has presumed sex or marriage are the ultimate means of satisfaction. And she needed to look further. And so, verse 28, the woman leaves her water pot and went into the city. She's going to be the really the first evangelist. Come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? And of course what she's saying, this is the Christ, isn't it? Jesus summed up her life. He told me all the things I've done. Her life has been a thirsty pursuit of sex and desire. But Jesus suggests that he has the answer to her desire or thirst. Dionysius, the Areopagite, says something that we normally don't think this way, but it seems to apply to this story. And that is that we often picture eros and agape as separate or pitted against one another. He says, let us not fear that in this yearning, that is the eros, let us not be upset for when the writers use eros and they use agape they have the same meaning physical love or eros according to Dionysius it may be partial it may be divided it may be lapsed it may fall short of divine agape yearning but nonetheless it is a point of entry into agape love Quote from Dionysius, the fact is that men are initially unable to grasp the simplicity of the one divine yearning. Who's yearning? Who's desire? Well, he's talking about God. In fact, I think this describes the difference between the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus. His is a repressed desire. He's totally cut off from the inherent reality of the situation, the divine reality. He's encountering God in the flesh. Her open desire is easily directed to Christ. The divine wisdom, Dionysius says, teaches that what true yearning is, it teaches through, first of all, erotic love. He says, it is clear to us that many lowly men think there is something absurd in the verse, love for you came on me like love for women. And of course, that is an imagery, a song of Solomon in the Bible, in which the love of God and romantic love are interwoven. Where discussion of sex and marriage, in this very discussion between Jesus and this woman, it leads naturally to having this desire of hers fulfilled. Jesus doesn't say to her, oh, you need to stop desiring, you need to stop these urges. But there is no such opening in Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. 
Her yearning may be displaced. It may be divided. She's divided it between six men, maybe. And Dionysus, those teaches that touch thereby with desire, one no longer belongs to themselves, but have come to belong to the object of their affection. And of course the trick is, well, what is the object of your affection? What is the source of affection? And so Paul, uh, in Dionysius' picture, he says, I live, and yet not I, but Christ liveth within me. He says, well, this is the divine yearning in Paul. True sweetheart that he was, as he says himself, being beside himself unto God, and not possessing his own life, but possessing and loving the life of him for whom he yearned. And so this sort of yearning is not simply human, it's God's yearning. We must dare to affirm that the creator of the universe, he says, in his beautiful and good yearning towards the universe, is through the excessive yearning of his goodness transported outside of himself. The love of God is overflowing. In his activities toward all things that have being and is touched by the sweet spell of goodness, love, and yearning. And so is drawn from his transcendent throne above all things to dwell within the heart of all things through a super essential and ecstatic power. That is, God is drawing all things. He's going outside of himself, drawing all things into himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so the desire of love pertains to ultimate reality. It pertains to who God is. As source of love and as substance of love. And to love is to experience God. So even divided and partial yearning is a primer to this kind of ultimate reality, this complete reality. Dionysius says, in short, both the yearning and its object belong to the beautiful and the good and have therein their pre-existent roots and because of it exist and come into being. In the one instance, God is the cause. He's the producer. He's the begetter. And in the other, he's the thing himself. He moves and leads onward himself unto himself. He is the object of love and yearning as the beautiful and good, but he is also the yearning and love, the motive power, leading all things into himself. And Dionysius pictures this as a kind of endless circle. For the good, from the good, in the good, and to the good, with unerring revolution. Never varying in its center, perpetually advancing and remaining and returning to itself. So maybe it is as with the Samaritan woman. Desire needs to be redirected. It needs to be reordered. But hers was an experience upon which I believe to enter into this endless circle of love. And certainly her conception of the erotic is turned around. Sex is no longer ultimate, but is itself though a pointer to God. 
you know, desire for unity, love, merging with others is a more basic reality than sex and gender. But the ontological reality toward which she is drawn, toward which we are drawn, it's interwoven through the earthly and physical. You know, this is the picture of the spirit. The spirit is poured out on all flesh. But very often in a modern understanding, it seems the spirit kind of floats free of bodies. Think of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is given and Peter quotes from the prophet Joel. And the prophet then describes, you know, in that section, he refers to the coming of peace where all material creation is raised up. The soil is told to be glad and rejoice. The animals of the field are told not to fear. The people are told that God has given the early rain for your vindication. The threshing floor will be full of grain and you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. It's amidst this physicality that God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And here is the enfleshment on the day of Pentecost. Here is the fulfillment, I think, of the spiritual conversation, the worship in spirit and truth. And so the work of the spirit is embodied. Think of where we encounter the spirit in baptism, in the bread and wine of communion, in the body of Christ, in the womb of Mary. In the churches, you know, the, the body of Christ, the spirit appeals to light and fire and sound. It says in Genesis, the spirit hovered over the face of the waters. Maybe it shows up in the very DNA of the life of the world. Let me close. This is it's an Eastern Orthodox patriarch, Ignatius IV. He says, without the spirit... God is far away. Christ belongs to the past. The gospel is a dead letter. The church is a mere organization. Authority takes the form of domination. Mission is turned into propaganda. Worship is reduced to bare re recollection. Christian action becomes the morality of a slave. But in the spirit, God is near. The risen Christ is present with us here and now. The gospel is the power of life. The church signifies Trinitarian communion. Authority means liberating service. Mission is an expression of Pentecost. The liturgy is a making present of both past and future. Human action is divinized. And so in Christ, the Christ that transforms all worship into worship of a spiritual kind, spiritual worship, it's summed up by John as love and made possible by the Spirit. He says, the one who does not love does not know God. God is love. And by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit, the Spirit of love which we are to embody, we're to dwell in, and we're to enact. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. 
If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.